The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. Hello, I'm Dr. Grant Horner. I'm a professor of humanities at the Masters University on the north end of Los Angeles, California. I've been teaching here since 1999. I teach courses in Shakespeare and other 16th, 17th century authors. I teach courses in art history, in Greek and Roman history and mythology, and in the historical theology of the Protestant Reformation, including courses on Martin Luther and John Calvin. I also run the Classical Liberal Arts Undergraduate Degree Program and the Master's University in Italy Study Abroad Program. My interest in the humanities actually began with a wonderful teacher in ninth grade, European civilization. We read this big, thick book that listed names and showed photos of paintings and architecture and historical events, none of which I knew anything all about. But I began to understand with this marvelous, marvelous teacher that everything in the world I lived in was somehow or another connected together historically, that culture was, despite all the differences, was actually a unity of human experience. The world into which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born was the ancient Mediterranean basin, and the culture was the Greco-Roman culture. One of the most recognizable of the pagan Greek and Roman gods was Mercury to the Romans and Hermes, or Hermes, to the Greeks. Everyone even now recognizes Hermes. He has the winged sandals, the talaria. He's carrying in his left hand, like any herald or messenger, the caducus, the staff, with two intertwined snakes rising up it. He's, his purpose is to bring you messages. Now, he has a number of different jobs. For instance, he is the god of business and therefore of negotiation, the idea that there is give and take and reciprocity in every situation. He's also a divine jokester and a trickster, many times a deceiver and primarily an ironist. And in modern English, Hermes has provided the word hermeneutics, which means interpretation. Now, one of the questions that you have as a believer and as a human is, what does everything mean? What does the Bible mean? What does the news mean? What does this painting mean? What does this novel or poem mean? What does culture mean? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of me and the meaning of God? What is the meaning of meaning? This is what I want to talk with you about, cultural hermeneutics. How do Christians best interpret culture theologically and, most importantly, biblically? Not only must we hermeneut culture, apply the idea of messaging, receiving communication from other sources and interpreting them, not only must we interpret culture, we must learn how to think through it, how to decide what to accept and what to reject, what to approve of and what to disapprove of, what things to stay away from, what things to cling to. In other words, interpretation isn't just figuring out the meaning of a poem or a philosophical idea or a political position. It's actually an act. It's a praxis. It leads to action or it should. Interpretation, hermeneutics, is important. This is why one of the greatest and most important of the Olympian gods was Hermes, the messenger god, the god of interpretation. So if we're going to talk about meaning, we're talking about not just what is the hidden meaning or the secret meaning, as I often hear my students, well, what's the secret meaning of this painting or the hidden message behind this poem? It's not usually either that simple or that complex. Real interpretation involves assessing value deciding not just what is right and wrong and what is good and bad, but what is better and what is best and what is ultimately according to the will of God. And from that point, we can launch off into deciding what we can accept and what we can reject, what we can approach to with 
proximity, what things we need to keep at a great distance, what things we must avoid entirely, and what things that we can hold on to tightly. In other words, we're assessing value by responding to cultural objects, paintings, poems, novels, movies, television shows, music, the visual arts like sculpture, the art that you can walk into, architecture, as well as non-physical cultural objects like ideas, concepts, theories, value systems, philosophical structures, and political theories. All of these are what I call cultural objects, and we have to learn as believers how to assess those things biblically and theologically, and how to position ourselves in a certain way that allows us to honor God with our minds, our heart, our soul, our strength towards those objects. I believe that scripture teaches us both implicitly and explicitly that believers must learn how to orient ourselves towards the cultures in which we find ourselves. Human beings, according to the teaching of scripture, are fallen human beings. We also live in a fallen culture because culture is the product of who and what we are, what we believe, what we value, and what we do. And so in order to live a life that pleases God and does least harm to ourselves and others, we need to learn to properly orient ourselves towards the culture and the cultural objects that we produce and that surround us and that we consume and make sure that those cultural objects, whether they are ideas or concepts or physical objects, do not consume us and become objects of idolatry. So as an academic, and before that, a believer, I teach a variety of courses that study culture. Essentially, I'm an intellectual historian, which means I study ideas and objects from the past through the present. My specialty is the Renaissance, so I'm trained in art history and in the literature and culture and philosophy of Italy and England and all of Europe from around the year 1350 to about 1670 or 80 or so. So I teach courses on Shakespeare and John Donne. I teach courses on some of the theologians, and some of the preachers, the Puritans particularly. Uh, I spend a lot of time studying and teaching on the visual arts because I've been to Italy over two dozen times currently. I spend a lot of time teaching in the museums and the palaces and the cathedrals of Italy, England, Germany, Switzerland, and other places. And I spend a lot of time doing what I often refer to as soaking in culture. It's not simply that I'm fascinated with these things that are interesting and beautiful, and they are interesting and beautiful, but I want to know why we produce these things and why people buy plane tickets to cross the ocean to come from America, to come from Asia, to come from other places, other parts of the world, in order to see the tremendous cultural influence of Western culture as it developed out of the Mediterranean basin through the Greek and Roman culture into the Middle Ages through the Renaissance. Why are we so fascinated with these things? Why do people walk inside of a cathedral and have a tremendous response to the sublime experience, the aesthetic experience of being overwhelmed by a massive, beautiful structure, even if we don't understand the architectural principles, even if we don't have a strong knowledge of the background of the art, the symbolism, and the theology behind it? Why do we respond to these things so strongly? Well, I think the answer to that is, in fact, a theological answer, because the question, like all real questions, is a theological question. So what I want to talk about is a hermeneutics of culture. Well, what is culture? What does it mean? Culture is not just something that grows in your yogurt. 
Culture comes from a very old Latin word, cultus. It is the root of our word for cult, which is technically a word about religious belief and practice. It is where we get the word agriculture. Agris is the Latin word for a field, so it is the cultivation of the field. It's where we get uh, our, our modern English word, culture, and it is where we get the word for a kind of a very thin plow that is dragged through a field before we bring a wide plow. In other words, what a coulter does is it plows open the ground and it opens it up so that it can receive seed and fertilizer and moisture so something can grow out of it. So the ancient Roman Latin word cultus really carries with it the idea of digging, of tearing up, of going down deep and planting something that then grows and multiplies. So in a very real sense, I think that we can view culture, theologically speaking, as that which human beings have planted and that which grows up and reproduces. That's what culture is. It's what we make, it's what we do, it's what we create, it's what we believe, it's what we consume, it's what we in many cases enjoy, it's what in many cases we find annoying or difficult to deal with. That's what culture is. Culture is the product of human experience. And because I believe that human experience needs to be understood biblically, I would say that the center of really understanding culture has to be theological. We have to ground it in what Scripture says about man and about God and about the world and about the fall. If man is indeed fallen, if the world that man has built in his fallen state is itself fallen and partakes of fallenness, then all art is fallen, all culture is fallen, literature, novels, plays, poems, all movies are fallen, all television shows are fallen, all philosophical and political systems are fallen. In fact, you could go so far as to say that all theology is in some sense a fallen human cultural object because there is no theology that is absolutely perfect. The way that we build a more perfect theology is by grounding it absolutely in the simple, clear teachings of Scripture. One of the clearest commands in the New Testament, and implied everywhere in the Old Testament as well, is that believers are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, that's a very simple command, but it's not that difficult to understand that it is extraordinarily difficult to enact it, to live it out, because we are what we read, we are what we consume, we are what we watch, we are what we hear and what we think. The problem with living fallen in a fallen world is it tends to compound our fallenness. And so Christians are enjoined to not love the world, to hate the world, in fact, to, in a certain sense, abandon the world. Well, if that was the case, we could take it in a very literal sense and simply end our lives and leave the world. Or God could simply save us and take us out of the world and save us a lot of grief. But because we are left in the world for the purpose of pointing to the truth of God in Christ, the story of the gospel, there must be some way that God wants us to live in the world but not be of the world. And what I believe is that our minds have to be so saturated with Scripture that we are, in a sense, impenetrable by the temptations that come to us externally from the world and the culture that the world uh, is characterized by, and we are also protected internally from the temptation that rises quite naturally from our fallen human nature. If we are to live in the world but not be of the world, I think what Scripture is telling us is that we are not called to resemble the world. The world is not our pattern. The world should not be the blueprint of who you become as you grow over time as a believer. 
What should happen is after conversion through the process of sanctification and what is called the washing of the water of the word, over time we will be mentored and discipled by other believers and by the Holy Spirit and we will grow into a place where the world becomes less and less attractive and we become more and more aware of our actual spiritual state, which is we are now living as aliens and strangers in the world. So what do we do with culture? Should we do what some have done in the past who named the name of Christ and build walls of brick and mortar and keep ourselves completely closed off from the temptations of the exterior world? Does that work? Or should we live in the world and act just like the world and do everything the world does and just ask for forgiveness? Does that work? Or do we find some kind of middle ground? Do we figure out how to live in the world and enjoy some of the things of the world, but not the really, really bad ones? What do we do? How do we live in the world? How do we live fallen in a fallen world? How do we live broken in a broken culture? That's what drives everything that I teach, everything that I write, and everything that I try and think through in my life as a believer. So now we come to another question, and that question is, what is the origin of culture? Did you ever stop and think about this? Really, why do we have opera? Who, who actually needs opera? Do we need Shakespeare? Do we really have to have novels? Why do we have fashion? Why not build little mud and stick huts and just live in those? Why do you need a Versailles? Why do you need a nice craftsman style home? Who needs a Victorian house? Why is it that you need a Porsche? Can't you just walk somewhere to get places? Why do we need uh, food that's more elaborate than just meat on a stick cooked over the fire? All of these things are cultural objects. Why do we develop philosophy? Why do we have Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle? Why do we have Sir Francis Bacon, and Hegel, and Kant, and Nietzsche, and Baudrillard? Why? Why do we come up with all of these ideas, all of these systems, all of these physical objects, all of these structures? Who really needs oil painting? Is humanity made better by the Mona Lisa or the inside of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome? Do we really, really, really have to have that big, beautiful dome on the American Capitol? Why do we have these things? Why do we have culture at all? And so what I want us to begin thinking about is the origins of culture, because origins are crucial. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Master's University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.